Welcome to the Testimony Podcast, people of faith telling the stories that matter from their lives. I'm your host, Andrew Chamberlain, and I'm delighted that you can join us for this conversation. You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast and Instagram at TestimonyPodcast. And welcome to episode 23 of the Testimony Podcast. You know, obedience to God offers us a tough but exciting path to take. Sometimes it involves giving things up and sometimes it involves taking on something new. My guest today is a man who was good at the hard subjects at school, maths, physics, that kind of thing. He's a clever guy and he could perhaps have worked his way all the way through to becoming an astronaut. But God had other ideas and the calling for my guest was not to mathematics or engineering or indeed to the stars but rather to creativity and to music for the glory of God. My guest today is Dave Silber, the man who founded the Nexus Institute of Creative Arts, an organisation that teaches and forms Christian musicians and technicians for service in the Kingdom of God. Dave is also the Chief Operating Officer for the Eternal Wall of Answered Prayer, whose leader, Richard Gamble, was featured in episode 18. The Eternal Wall of Answered Prayer is going to be a physical monument to answered prayer from the past and present day, and it'll be located near Coventry in England. And I mention this project right now because if you're listening to this podcast as it is released, you have the opportunity to contribute to the crowdfunding campaign for this project, which will be running from the 13th of September to October the 22nd, 2021. I know that the Eternal Wall Project would appreciate your support and prayers at any time, but if you're listening to this episode as it's released, please prayerfully consider making a financial contribution to this fantastic project. You can find out more at www.eternalwall.org.uk. That's eternalwall.org.uk. But this episode is about Dave, and this is his story, a man who through faith and perseverance likes to say and live by one of his favourite phrases, there must be a way. Dave, welcome to the Testimony Podcast. It's great to have an opportunity to talk to you. Okay, well, it's great to be here with you. Great to have the chance to tell stories. I'm a big storyteller, so I love talking about some of the things that have happened. Uh, One thing, probably, I am an American because this will probably keep people guessing. They often think Canadian. But I was born on the Canadian border on the American side, so that that uh, counts for some of the accent. But uh, I've lived in the UK for 37 years. Okay. So kind of formative years were in the USA, and uh, I've lived over here most of my adult life. So, But uh, I suppose a general kind of highlight reel of life, uh, my father was uh, an Assemblies of God minister. But they came to faith late in life. So I was the youngest of three kids, and the other two had moved away from home when my parents gave their life to the Lord and then went into ministry. So I was the only one that grew up with that kind of faith legacy. And I don't think, I wouldn't describe it as a typical preacher's kid sort of upbringing. Uh, My parents were kind of crazy radical. You know, they they went from nothing to... Uh, dad preaching on the streets of Los Angeles to the gangs. You know, it was that kind of thing, <laughs> yeah. sort of all or nothing yeah. with them. Wow. So my my kind of faith legacy or formative years were dad quitting his job, giving all their money away, uh, preaching in prisons and gangs. And, and pretty early in life, I started traveling with my parents over to Europe where they began working with open doors and they, they did some what you could consider traditional Bible smuggling, taking Bibles and things to Christians in persecuted church areas. But I, I actually joined a couple of those trips, which were uh, again into the former Soviet Union. And, and what I discovered almost retrospectively in life is that they didn't check the cars or they didn't check the families that had small children with them quite as careful they did others so they used to do things i know this sounds a little bit strange probably to the listener it didn't seem strange to me but i used to carry sometimes little belts of american dollars strapped to uh strapped under my shirt because it was so difficult for pastors and churches to resource the work they were doing that getting them hard currency uh was very important so Mm. i kind of had that sort of crazy upbringing (laughs) 
but um, and that that eventually brought me over to Europe for good. And so I, I have this kind of deep faith legacy. Nothing is impossible. God opens doors. Uh, if you're obedient, God resources and makes a way. And I, I think some of those characteristics were there all of my life. And, and in some ways, they account for a lot of the choices I, I've made as an adult in, in mm-hmm. ministry and so on. So, Do you want to give us an example of some of those choices then that you've made, having been brought up in that philosophy and that way of thinking? Yeah, uh, sure. I, well, I suppose most of my schooling life, I was quite successful, found schooling quite easy. I had a pretty strong, I, I guess, desire to go into the sciences and, and the maths. And an uh, interesting thing happened when I was probably uh, 15, 16. I entered a competition that uh, NASA was running. Okay. And uh, I had been building and experimenting with model rocketry and doing different things. And I entered uh, a rocketry based competition. And, and I won some significant prizes, including a trip down to the space shuttle training center and met a lot of the astronauts. And Ooh, yeah. And the follow up project I did to that in the following year, I won similar prizes. And it, it was quite, I think there was a nice setup for a NASA scholarship to university. I'd won some big cash prizes with the Air Force. And so I had this path, I, I think, marked out for me which was a study, uh, a physics-based degree for your first degree, join the Air Force Academy, then go on into the astronaut training program. And that, that was really all I considered for five or six years. Um, I think it was a safe, secure way. I think my parents and everybody approved of that Okay, and, yeah. and so on. But, but the, I suppose the biggest change of direction happened in those years and i rather than serving my own dream or my interest i started thinking about what does god want for my life but choosing what i thought he wanted meant giving up or it seemed like it was giving up a pretty sure way to the american dream as we used to call it you know yeah, yeah. and um it meant Actually, it meant in this case studying music and being trained for ministry and going into a music ministry pathway, which, of course, the combination of music and youth work and ministry, none of those are particularly secure professions. And a lot of people think, are you sure? You know, they, they use phrase like proper job and yeah, safe yeah. for career route and friends, girlfriends, you know, all, all these different voices start coming in. And and that was the first big decision where it was, I'm making a choice on the unseen, you know, that kind of goes against the circumstances, but mm-hmm. trusting that God will make a way through it. And mm-hmm. uh, once I'd made that decision, I never looked back. I went to music college then, then had a light life probably in ministry for the next 20 or so years in music ministry based on that. Um so, yeah, I, I think there subsequently there were many other decisions, but that was the first one I personally made, which yeah. was going against, uh, I suppose, all logic and, and reason and saying, I think God is leading me in this direction. I'm going to choose something based on that. So so you could have been an astronaut. Could have perhaps. been. Yeah. Well, my, yeah. my best friend went that route, actually. OK. Uh, it was something we wanted to do together. Yeah. Um, yeah, he he followed the path almost all the way. He ended up with four master's degrees and a PhD in physics, and he actually went into the defense industry instead, uh, working for Boeing on secret weapons projects. So, sure. So, wow. Okay. But uh, so, yeah, so you could have been an astronaut or working on a secret project for the government or something like that. So, like that yeah <laughs> okay you know, with um, americans is a big deal yeah yeah know? i mean it's it's it sounds it sounds exciting and it sounds fulfilling yeah. doesn't it i mean it's great it's it's great yeah but but you made a conscious decision to do something else i guess primarily because that something else was what you felt that god was calling you to do yeah yeah okay and 
do you want to tell us a little bit about I just still want to focus on some of the things you've done in your life so I I hear that you've had two world records in your life do you want to yeah do you want to tell us about those? <laughs> yeah sure well I, I suppose the world records are almost an extension of, of just my basic philosophy personality type uh, I've always said it was probably going to be on my tombstone the, the phrase I'm, there must be a way. I, I don't get defeated very easily. I'm pretty optimistic and figure there, if you take on almost any challenge logically, there's a way to learn how to overcome it. So uh, this, actually the world records came uh, after we started a music and worship school called Nexus. And uh, although it was a music training college and and training people for ministry or serving churches or a career in music i was trying to also we always saw it as kind of a holistic development environment and i knew for a lot of young people there were limitations in their thinking that that uh, they really needed to overcome to break through in whatever area it was and so we we're trying to create scenarios that helped them discover that you know, it's, it, there's only so many things you can stand in a classroom and lecture somebody on. Yeah. Some of them yeah. have to be experienced. So we started coming up with these. We looked at, I, I guess, what are the obstacles and the taboos that people think are immovable? And could we create activities that help them, you know, overcome these? So one of those was the need for sleep. So we started doing initially 24-hour music challenges. and once we'd done that way, could you play your instrument for 24 hours without a break? And the first time that seemed almost impossible. After two or three years of doing this, we'd figured it out. So we were like, well, what's what's the next kind of thing? And we had been traveling to Denmark doing some concerts, and we went to the Guinness Book of Records Museum there in, in Copenhagen and saw this uh, record for endurance music. So that caught our attention and, and mm. looked at the record. And, you know, the record at that time was 28 hours and 15 minutes of nonstop playing. So we thought, well, that's not much more than we've been doing. No. Surely we can break that record. What we didn't realize were the conditions for uh, the Guinness conditions for the record were really interesting. You basically did eight hours of continuous playing to pre-recorded music and it couldn't repeat. And every eight hours, you were you got a very short break to use the toilet. So in the end, going for 32 hours was less about could you play, in this case, for my, my case, drums, could you play drums for 32 hours? It was how much bladder control did you have? Uh, so we, we rigged up some things, which probably, you know, most people don't want to hear our solutions to that issue. But uh, <laughs> We came with you found, you with found a way around that problem, basically. Yeah, we found a way around that problem, and okay. uh, so so we broke this record at 32 hours the very first time, as a kind of a collectively as a music college. And basically, what that means is it's not a relay. Once you sit down and start playing drums, or this was this was for endurance drumming. This first record, you just don't stop. And if you think about a normal gig that you play for musicians. 20, 22 songs might be the max you'd play at one time. Well, there was like 1,400 songs in this set list. So it's just like a gig that never ends. But it was interesting. That first time, it seemed almost impossible to go to 38, 32 hours. But another music school challenged us, and they broke that. And they did 40 hours. Wow. Uh, so a couple of years later, we took it back with 52 hours. They broke it with 60. We broke that with 66 hours. They broke it with 70. We broke it with 72 hours and 15 minutes. So we broke the same record six times, but trading it with the, with the same music yeah. school all those years. Yeah. I guess they, they spurred you on towards it, didn't they? These other guys. In a way. Well, you know, after about 12 years of doing this, we finally, uh, we finally asked them, you know, maybe we should go for it at the same time, almost a last man standing sort of, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. but uh, you know, once you start getting 72 hours, some strange things start happening to you physically and psychologically. And it, it got harder to convince the parents of our students that this was really a legitimate activity, but 
but but I mean the record was great, but people learn a lot about their limits uh, yeah, okay. through okay. that. And and although it you know they'll never have to play drums or music, you know they won't they won't face those conditions in life. What it did teach people is when it fa- when they faced physical or mental or emotional barriers, it was possible to break through a lot of these. Mm. And uh, mm. and 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 a lot of them years later they still talk about it. You know that time uh, that really set me up for life and and all the obstacles that it would bring. So yeah, it was it was pretty good. We we tried a couple that we didn't break along the way, but uh, yeah, always on the lookout for a new challenge. <laughs> so if we we bring this back to to you though, um, <clears throat> so what? It, what else did you do then in your life? What have you What have you been up to, perhaps a little bit more recently? Okay. Uh, well, from there was a big music phase. So instead of going to study science and aeronautics, I went and studied music in Hollywood. And from the end of that, through to I don't know about the age of thirty or so, it was just nonstop gigging and musical activity we we toured with bands around europe doing a couple hundred gigs a year there were a lot of worship-based ministry going on playing at a lot of festivals and bible weeks and conferences and doing the kind of different church and christian worship circuit in that time so almost that first decade after college finished was all sitting behind the drums for me then the next phase Really, we were we were doing all these gigs, hundreds of gigs, and they, these were evangelistic gigs, preaching the gospel to young people primarily. And after that time, we we counted we'd done about seventeen hundred gigs, and even with that amount, it just felt like we were scratching the surface. You know, we we needed to multiply the effectiveness of this, and so this idea of starting a school and training others and getting people sent out and multiplying that that whole thing that was our next i guess the next phase so we we started this college nexus institute of creative arts training christian musicians which has now been going for 23 years eventually it became a degree program we have several degrees running now and and master's degrees and so on still with the same basic idea of discipling singers, songwriters, technicians, producers, musicians, training them for life, not just, you know, not just for serving in the church, but for a life of of serving God through their gifting and, and so on. So that was another big phase. And towards the end of that phase, and this is really the last 10 years, I, I started to want to tell stories. I, I was consciously aware that I suppose more and more people were not you know, you'd meet people and they had no biblical knowledge. They didn't know the biblical stories. More and more of society was completely removed from that understanding. And you're thinking of ways to translate the message of the gospel to people that have no starting point. And probably that's not going to happen in a normal church context or some of the traditional ways. So I started thinking of, you know, wanting to be able to communicate that. And Music is obviously a great medium that crosses language and crosses a lot of the different barriers. But I was kind of running out of the things I could do musically and was looking for other ways. And so began to get into the idea of theater and looking, well, what could be done visually? What could be done through dance? What could be done through clever script and dialogue? And began to develop original musical theater projects, I guess. They were pretty hard hitting. We were taking on some some difficult questions, some big topics and and felt like, you know, there was plenty of Christian entertainment around and different things. We wanted holistic experiences that almost uh, the, took the audience breath away. They knew they had experienced something when they left and we could bring them right into the middle of some difficult questions about life and also essentially bring a challenge to them about what did what did the bible say what did jesus say about some of those issues and what what were some of the ways forward from the, the deep questions people had and i guess we loved that and per, personally i i found that palette of the multi 
uh, multiple arts and creative and visual, I, I found that uh, I was able to go a lot further with communication. So this idea of storytelling, I, I became the chair of the board of a, of a theater in Birmingham and it just began to pursue, I, it was almost what we used to call it live cinema. We used a lot of 360 degree projection around the audience and screens over the top of the audiences and live action in between. And I guess we tried to put people right into the heart of the action, right in the heart of the story. So that developed and, and got more extreme over time, I guess. And we started to export that to other countries and other people wanted to take on some of these stories for their own outreach work in theaters and churches and so on. So that was kind of the last 10 years. And it, it, I guess as I kept asking that question, and I, I do write to present day, what are the different ways we can communicate the heart of Jesus, uh, the heart of the gospel? What is, what is God really thinking and when he looks down on some of the issues facing our world? And how do I let people into some of that beyond the barriers of organized religion that people might have come up against? but right into the heart of what Jesus came to do to transform life. And so I'm always asking these questions. And about two years ago, uh, a new opportunity presented itself. And, uh, I, you know, it was just uh, opening up the possibility that God might have something new in store for us. You know, just presenting this to God. Is there anything in new direction you want to take us in? And I'm, I'm kind of trying to actively listen, I guess. So in this phase of active listening, I get a phone call and uh, it's somebody I know on the other end. And he says, hey, Dave, um, I know this is going to sound crazy, but there's this opportunity I want to tell you about. I just feel I should present it to you. doesn't make sense, but here it is. And he said, do you know uh, about a project called, uh, it was, at the time it was called The Wall of Answered Prayer. And uh I said, I've seen, I, I've seen something about that on Facebook or social media. I'm, I'm kind of aware of the basic idea. And, and it's called Eternal Wall of Answer Prayer now. But the basic idea was this vision to create a colossal piece of kind of architectural art made of a million bricks. But each of those bricks, the significance is not really the bricks, but each of those bricks has a someone's story, someone's testimony of God reaching into their lives and changing something, rewriting some of their story. And it's basically their testimony of provision or healing or peace in the midst of a storm or salvation or something where they asked God, called out, and God answered. And, and so I thought, oh, this is interesting, a million stories. And so that kind of piqued my interest. And I said, okay, tell me more. What, what, for what reason are you really calling today? And basically, they said, you know, the, the guy, Richard Gamble, whose vision this was, he'd been kind of doing this on his own for 15 years and had some people volunteering and helping. But it was growing to the stage, the critical moment where this thing kicked into action. Is this going to be built? And basically, the question was, you know, he needs some help with creative energy, you know, expanding this thing and making it real. And I said, well, that, that's the kind of thing I like to take on. And I'm thinking to myself, well, maybe I could give him a few hours a month to help out. And yeah, yeah. Said, well, here's the deal. I've got this full-time work I'm doing with the theater and with, the, with Nexus and training musicians. But I'll, I'll meet with Richard and, and see what he said. And so I met him for coffee the very next day. And he tells me more about Eternal Wall and his vision to... Uh, be a catalyst for for the nation praying and getting a million people telling their stories of God transforming their lives and I'm 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 on board with everything he's saying I think this is amazing I love the potential of this so I, I say to him a dangerous question I said what help do you need <laughs> and he said well we're at the stage where basically all the operational stuff I just want to push across the table and have you pick it up and make it happen and I said, okay, uh, this sounds like more than a few hours a month. It does sound like more than a few hours a month, doesn't it? Yeah. And we went from that conversation over coffee to uh, the next couple of years, basically it becoming almost a full-time thing. Wow. And uh, so essentially what I do now for Eternal Wall is 
I do all the, uh, I head up the teams that gather the stories. So we, we gather testimonies from people all across the UK, all across the world, trying to find these million people to tell their stories. And we record them written or uh, we record the story being told through audio or if we can, we video them telling their story. And through the development of an app that people will have on their phone, uh, these stories will come to life as people visit this massive monument that's being built in the heart of the nation right in the Midlands. So it's a huge project. This thing is uh, bigger than Nelson's column. It's about the size of a width of a football pitch. Uh, you know, a million of anything is a lot. And a million bricks towers above you. And we're right at the stage of starting getting ready to build. And wow. so it's been a, a crazy <laughs> journey. But I think it makes sense for me because here is something that mobilizes people to tell their stories in a way yeah. that other people can connect with it. And I think that makes perfect sense with the stuff I've been kind of pursuing the last 30 years. So, okay. Um, so we may well cut, well, I think we will come back to the eternal wall of answer prayer a little bit later on, but I wanted to ask you like in your life, yeah, are there maybe a couple of occasions and I suspect given the kind of things you said, there really probably are where you've really felt like Jesus has been your companion with you, you know, in the best or worst moments, it kind of doesn't really matter. It yeah. doesn't have to be something that's even neat and tidy. It could still, you know, okay. stuff that's ongoing, but just, just where you've really felt that God has been close to you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, there's, there's a lot of stories. If, if I start with the first time I was conscious of this and then go on to some more, something sure. more recent. First time. So I, I said earlier on that, you know, I kind of grew up at this point where my, my parents came to faith and really changed the direction of their life. My, my dad was a successful businessman in the oil industry. We're, I guess what people would call a wealthy family living in the suburbs of Orange County, California. And my parents gave that all up to, to serve the Lord. And um, when I was 14, I, this was, you know, I hadn't made this decision to give up on the, the science dream and all of that, but I was also pretty successful in sports. I was playing a lot of sports at school and I tried out for a baseball team, quite a, a successful one and a well-known one, kind of for the, the, the farm program of this baseball team. And the condition, I, I went through the tryouts and I got selected, but it was conditional upon medical clearance. Okay. Well, I, I, you know, I thought I'm probably never going to be more fit than I am at this moment in my life. You know, yeah. I, I expected this to be a complete formality. But what happened as I went through the medical tests, the, the, the doctor who was doing this said, you know, I can't sign this form for the team yet. I, I need to do some follow up. There's something I'm a little bit concerned about. I want to do some more testing. You know, at this point, I thought, well, okay, you know. And um, so he called my parents and talked to them about it. And the next few weeks was was uh, kind of going back and forth to the hospital, doing some tests and some x-rays and things. And what they discovered, which was what he was concerned about, was a problem in my spine. And it turned out to be a kind of degenerative spinal disorder. And in simplest terms, what happens is the, the bones of the spine start to fragment and they, they drift off into the muscle surrounding in the back muscles and so on. And if this continues, the spine ultimately can't support itself and it would collapse. And uh, so at that point in time, I guess this was the late 70s, the only treatment for it was to have surgery and put a, a titanium support in the spine and, and kind of attach the bones onto that. Wow. So this obviously starts sounding pretty serious. Yeah, that does sound very and, serious. And that, there's one thing that I'll never forget. We left the, the hospital one time with a, a meeting with the consultant and, and they had selected a date for this surgery and it was approaching winter. And, and I asked the, the, physician i said you know 
am I still able to do this or should I stop doing certain things? Could they, could they make things worse? And he said, no, you know, do whatever you want because it's likely to be the last time you'll do any of these things. And that yeah. was, you know, I mean, you know, I, at that time, really, I know people live productive, happy lives with disabilities and, and all kinds of situations. But for me as a teenager, it felt like the moment before my whole life was ahead of me looking a certain way. And now there's this thing. It's the last time you'll probably ever do this kind of ringing in my head. Uh, and I remember we, we lived in a different part of the country then. I remember shoveling the snow off of our drive so I could shoot some baskets, play a little basketball that winter. And, but my parents, you know, they were, I, as I said before, they were really faith filled, believing God. If the Bible said it, they believed it and they would pray about it. And they said, we're going to pray every day until you have the surgery and ask God for a miracle. And what I discovered during this time was I had kind of inherited this faith. It had not been tested up to this point at all. I just kind of, I wasn't an unbeliever. I didn't have any reason to doubt what my parents believed. It just hadn't become personal. Sure. It was easy to go along with it. Now I'm asking really big questions about life for the very first time. And uh, so we got to that date. We got to that date where I went in for surgery. It, it's three days in the hospital. Uh, and they do the, the, they were taking x-rays every two weeks at this point. So I'm there in the traditional blue paper gown, you know, uh, getting, getting ready. And they put up the most recent set of x-rays on, on the viewer and they put them next to the previous set. Now, without a medical degree, the previous set, you can see the bone fragments in the back muscle. And you can see them move over time if you, if you look at a sequence. Yeah. Then they put this set up. There's nothing wrong with it. There's no bones. There's no nothing. And so this is all pretty weird. So the short version is they sent me home that weekend. They didn't do the surgery. And I kept going back regularly over the next six months. You know, they never said, it's a miracle or anything like that. They yeah. just, said, well, you know, you live long enough, strange things happen. We've seen strange things happen in people's, you know, medical conditions. For my parents, they were convinced that God had answered that prayer. And for me, what it really was, it, the, what, what went through my mind is, is if God is actually interested enough in my personal, in me personally, to intervene in this scenario, I need to give this serious consideration. And I, you know, and that really was the catalyst for me coming to personal faith. I didn't have big obstacles to overcome, but it needed to be real for me. There comes a time you can't live on the faith of parents or friends. Yeah. That's not enough to sustain you in life. And for, this was that first moment for me where I I believed that God was real and I. I experienced his intervention in my life. And so that, that was the first time. Uh, there have been plenty of times through the years where we, we haven't had finance and we've needed to trust God for provision and his resource came different ways. And I guess we could, you could build a case throughout life of where you've seen the hand of God do things uh, for you and you've, you've known his presence. But you, you asked the question in, in an interesting way about is there a time i've really known i suppose god in a close proximate way mm. Mm. and uh, this came when i became a father so uh i've been married 31 years but my wife and i were touring in a band for a lot of the years we didn't want to start having a family and have children on the road with us and we could have but we it didn't seem like a, a good recipe for us uh so we were I guess married 10 years before we had our first son and his name is Joel and uh, everything was fine at first. And just before his first birthday, he began having seizures and they tested him and uh, none of the normal things seemed to, you know, epilepsy or different things didn't seem to be the cause. And uh, just before, normally these seizures 
last 30 seconds. But they tell you, you know, how to manage it as parents. And they, they say, you know, you need to call an ambulance. If a seizure doesn't stop, brain damage can begin after seven minutes. So you need to call the ambulance after three minutes if, if a seizure isn't stopping. Uh, so, you know, we're pretty heightened. We have a heightened awareness of this every time a seizure happens. And normally they all just come and go. He snaps out of it. And nothing's, you know, and there's no problem. And then this one happens just before his first birthday. And it doesn't end. It's, you know, 30 seconds, a minute, two minutes, three minutes. You're starting to think, you know, do we call an ambulance at this stage? Now, I was actually at work. I was teaching a lecture. And uh, my phone starts ringing. And I ignore it at first. And then it just keeps ringing. And I see it's my wife. And she's already at the hospital, having called the ambulance. And she said, get to the hospital as quickly as you can. And uh, I get there probably, what's 45 minutes, and he's still in this seizure. And they're trying a lot of different drugs and different things to bring him out of this hour passes, two hours, four hours, six hours. And all you can think about is that thing where they said seven minutes brain damage starts. You're thinking, well, if that, if that's possible at seven minutes, what happens at seven hours? Mm. You know, they're, they're unable to stop this. And I think we're standing there in the hospital room and, you know, there's a lot of activity. There's all kinds of stuff going on and the hours are passing. And, you know, this connects with some of the other stuff we're saying. I'm, I'm a pretty determined person. As we've already discussed, I've always thought there's a way forward. You know, I could apply my will to overcome challenges, but there's nothing about my strength of personality or mind or determination that can do anything in that moment. I'm Mm. completely helpless, Mm. you know, and there's nothing you can do except as a dad, throw yourself on the mercy of God. And you're just standing there in the hospital room calling out, God, if there's some way of doing something, you know, and it was interesting. I I guess that's, we didn't know how this was going to turn out, but we knew God was with us and the hours keep passing and we just keep praying. Uh, You know, we're just there. We sense that God is with us, whatever's going to happen. Obviously I don't want him to die. Obviously I don't want him to have no function or, or different things like that, but you know, it was pretty traumatic, got to say, mm. um, but we knew the hand of God was with us and we get to 23 hours and they proposed their final solution, if you like. And they said, we're at the stage now where there's only one thing we can try, which is put him into an induced coma and with the hopes that that shuts down brain activity and essentially we can reboot him and see. And, you know, anything that happens in a one-year-old is, has increased risk with it. And so mm-hmm. we're standing there, you know, that, that's obviously they're preparing for this. And they've called a team from another hospital. They don't have a team at the hospital we were at that does this. And they called it from the nearest city. We're waiting for them to arrive. And just as they're about to arrive and take him away, he snaps out of it. He wakes up. The seizures stop and he opens his eyes. And, uh, you know, you wonder, is there going to be any, you know, will he move his eyes? Will he be able to communicate? What's going to happen? And he immediately started messing around and, and kind of making little jokes that with the nurses and playing peekaboo and different things. You think he seems 100% normal. Now, you know, God was with us in that situation. I believe God brought him out of that but here's an interesting thing is he wasn't healed of the epilepsy he was he was saved from you know possible death or from possible damage um he's now a fully developed 22 year old but he still has epilepsy and i think it was an interesting lesson to learn we saw god's hand at one thing but we haven't seen the total victory if you like we've we've 21 years of having to manage that through a variety of different challenges along the way and through Joel's development and things. So for me, it's the best example because 
God was both there in the moment, giving us the sort of, I guess, just encouragement and peace in the moment, but he's been our strength then leading on from there as we've battled that now for 20, 21 years. And so it it's, and I, I think that's the interesting thing is, you know, not every story has a Hollywood ending and not every story is perfect. And sometimes it's okay. Well, now what, how do you, how do you take the next steps? How do you live in the midst of a pressure or a challenge? And, mm. and those are big questions. A lot of people have, and, I guess we've known that God has been with us. We don't always know the whys and the reasoning. Maybe one day we will, maybe one day we won't. But we've never found him not to be faithful to us. And and I think that's been the story of our life. Okay. Um, Are there any other stories that you would particularly want to share? I, I mean, I've been asked a lot of times, you know, what are the most significant things? Uh, in life and you know uh, particularly as people start hearing the stories um, I I suppose one real I think the other most formative thing for me that's happened is it kind of links to music if that's okay Mm. and you know probably even though you know it sounds pretty noble I want I decided to make a decision to go into music and serve God with music but I have to admit, as an 18-year-old drummer, you still kind of want to be a Christian rock star. You sort of hope that the way you serve God with music is that you're going to be in the world's most famous band and, and you'll have this massive platform and stage and audience. And, you know, somebody will ask you something. And you'll say, well, I'm a Christian. And it'll be like Acts 2 and thousands of people will give their life to Jesus. And that's kind of, you know, I suppose the picture you paint and actually God has something very different and it's been a long, in some ways, humbling road. And uh, although I've done a lot of gigs and I've done a lot of things that typical musicians do really early on, I began to see a pattern that God was taking me to places that were not exactly the number one concert destinations. I I think the, the very first tour I did was into was into Russia in the middle of winter, just when the Soviet Union transferred across to the Republic of Russia. And here's a, a, an atheistic nation that starved of the gospel or Bibles or for, for a century. And yet, the, you know, we were playing some pretty seedy nightclubs and different places, but you saw the need of people, the hunger for people for something more. And this pattern continued. I, I ended up in a band that went into Bosnia during the Balkan Wars. And we'd be smuggled in with UN troops and things behind enemy lines to get to, to uh, refugee camps and do concerts to refugee camps and things. The places where you know hardly anybody's visiting. There's not much resource, pretty desperate situations of live combat. And, and yet, you, you know. I, I think it had more impact on us as as a band than it did on the people. It felt like we were doing nothing, but they seemed to be so moved and blessed and thankful that somebody came. You know, some of these people have been trapped in these situations for a long time, have lost everything. And all, all we're doing is sitting there playing some songs and, you know, and yet it was, it had an impact on them. And, Mm. From there, the next thing I got involved in was in Rwanda after the genocide there. God opened a door there to be part of a, a, a healing through music after the trauma of the genocide. And, and one really great experience, which absolutely floored me, um, where I totally knew I was out of my depth, you know, um, and needed God to come through. Uh, we were we were doing uh, we were going to be doing a concert in the national stadium in Rwanda, and it was to celebrate the end of the genocide. You know where a million people had been murdered in a, in a hundred days. I mean horrific. And we were working with local musicians and singers. And at the first rehearsal, the musical director asked the whole room. There was about forty people in this room. 
saying, how many of you lost a family member in the genocide, you know, in the, in the fighting? Every single hand went up. I mean, there wasn't a person. Some of them had lost most of their family. And, and then he asked them, who has lost their parents, you know, during the genocide? And about half of the people had lost uh, one or more parents. And what happened is that, and uh, he asked, he said, well, there's three of us who are fathers here. And I was one of those, you know, I've, I've got one child, I'm a, a new father. And he said, if you lost your parents in, in the genocide, just come and stand next to one of us as fathers. Mm. And we're going to be like the hands of God, the father to you. And, you know, minister healing and, and comfort to you. Now, what happened is tears and crying and wailing erupted in the room as these, as these young men and women came and kind of threw themselves at our feet, just hanging onto your legs, crying like I've, I've never experienced before. And, you know, I'm not in some ways not a super emotional guy. And I have no idea what to do in this situation. Uh, this is this is too profound. This is too outside my realm of experience. I mean, what can I possibly say to, to people, you know, who were young kids who saw their parents murdered, sometimes by their own relatives or neighbors? You know, horrific stuff. I can't identify with that. I, I, I grew up in Southern California. You know, I grew up the American dream. I've been pretty successful at stuff. Um, I, I just felt I had nothing, nothing to say. I just got down on the ground and cried with them. I mean, I it's like, I didn't know what else to do. And a um, couple of weeks later, one of the, one of these women who was, who'd come up to, you know, come up to me, she steps forward to the mic to sing a song. We're, we're the band. And there's 40,000 people in this stadium. And she comes up to sing this song about healing and hope in the future that she has in knowing that it's God who heals. It's God who repairs broken hearts. It's God who restores that which was taken away. And she's singing this song and I'm playing drums and I'm crying. And, and I'm just, it's like I'm witnessing Everything Jesus said he came to do, you know, when Jesus comes and announces his ministry, he's, he talks about, you know, from ashes to beauty, from brokenness to joy and praise. This, this vast transformation from death to life that Jesus came to do. And it's like in those three weeks, I got to witness that. And, um, and this story doesn't, you know, even end there because a couple of years ago, I got to go back. And now that same, who was a young girl who inherited being the mother of her family at, at 18, who then was standing singing that song in that stadium, is now the director of that healing and music ministry, going around the country, ministering to people like herself. And I, I just, I don't know that I've ever seen a better example where I've just thought, God, you are amazing. You've, you've given me the chance to see what you're really like. I don't feel worthy of seeing that. I don't feel, I don't know why I was chosen to be part of that, but I can never really think about life the same. It felt like I was walked through what Jesus was like in this experience. And, and, you know, that will go with me and that shapes my thinking and my outlook for the rest of my life, however long that is, you know? Wow. And yeah. That was a really significant time. I mean, these are these are things that shape you and form you for a lifetime, aren't they? The things you're talking about, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to tell this story, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, and not and not kind of lose it, but yeah, yeah, it well, really was sharing that. My prayer is that people hear these things and they're encouraged and they feel, yeah, yeah, actually, I can trust in God for this, and I can, you know, maybe God can engage with them in this way. So. So we need to come to a close, actually. I've probably I've had yeah. you for more time than I said I would have, but um, That's it's, okay. been, it's been great to, to, to hear these stories. So earlier on, you you mentioned the eternal wall of answer prayer. Um, yeah. And 
uh, uh, Richard has been one of the one of my guests on this podcast. Actually, I had a great chat with him. So some people listening to this will know what that is, but others won't. So I wonder if you could tell okay. us a little bit more about the Eternal Wall of Answer Prayer and the mission of it, and and how perhaps how people could get involved with it now. The easiest way to explain it is there's a giant piece of artwork that's going to be created just outside of Birmingham, right between two motorways and right next to Birmingham International Airport. And this thing will tower out of the ground up to 170 feet. And it, it forms like an infinity loop if people want to get that shape in their mind. They probably have seen something like that. But the thing is colossal. It's, it's uh, going to be huge. People are going to be kind of blown away. It's, it's quite interesting engineering-wise and artistically but essentially it's crowd created because each of the million bricks, if you imagine lining up a, a million bricks and winding them around, it, it's, it's, it becomes a pretty massive thing. But the thing that's significant is each one of those represents a story of the type that I've, I've told here tonight. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not all, all going to be dramatic stories. Uh, they're going to be plain, ordinary life stories where God answered somebody in a time of need or in a time when they they needed help beyond their circumstances or abilities, where God provided, where he healed, where he restored, where he gave them peace in the midst of difficulty, um, where he gave them hope for the future. A lot of people are talking about the future now because of what we've just lived through and feeling somewhat of hopelessness. And so we 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 talk about making hope visible through this project but it's really a million people who say hey i've got a story that i want to be shared to generations to come and so what what happens in simple terms is somebody will call us up or we'll meet somebody in a church or through you know our website or something and they'll tell us part of their story and that story becomes a brick and in years to come, we expect this monument to be there in, you know, for the next hundred years. Thousands and tens of thousands of people will see it every day as they pass by on the motorways and they'll think, what is that thing? But we expect hundreds of thousands of people to come and visit it. And they'll, they'll be able to walk around it. And they'll be able to hold their phone up to it and read the stories. They'll be able to search for a story. So if they're going through something in their life uh, and they want to know, are there any stories in this structure about it? They can search for it and it will point out the different bricks where somebody's okay. told the story and, and they'll be able to read about somebody else who was in uh, a situation similar to theirs and how they found hope in the midst of a difficult wow. time. Okay. And, and our, our prayer, our vision for it is as people interact with the reality of God in somebody's life that it produces faith in them for their own circumstance. Mm. It produces hope in them for their own future. And ultimately our, our hope is that it leads them to the God who answers the prayer. So this story is not the ultimate thing. It's discovering the God who hears and answers and is still at work today. And Mm. uh, our hope is that this thing is big enough that it catches people's attention, that it's a bold enough statement about Jesus that it produces conversation and people start talking about it. Mm. And it becomes a challenge for people to pray for their, in their own lives. And, you know, bringing this right up to date uh, is interesting over the COVID period that the whole world has gone through. You know, there's a lot of people who started praying for the first time. Uh, maybe, they, maybe they started by praying for Boris Johnson when he got COVID. Maybe they prayed for a relative. Maybe they just prayed that this thing would end and life would return to normal. And I think, you know, there's something in the midst of crisis where people look for something beyond themselves. And what we're hoping to do is say, here's the thing beyond ourselves that we found. And maybe yeah. you can find it too. Yeah. And so this is a huge project um, in one sense it's an architecture engineering construction project and we're we're beginning that construction phase right now and we've seen god's hand we've been given a big piece of land we've been given the money to pay 
all, all of our expenses and we've been given the first money to begin construction. We're about to start the time of crowdfunding because ultimately this will be something that's done by thousands of people across the world. And, you know, if, as this money comes in, we'll begin to build and people will begin to see this thing grow and mm. we'll, we'll add mm. the stories to it. And, and hopefully it will be like a beacon right in the middle of the nation that very clearly says, we believe Jesus is alive today. Mm. And people don't have to accept that, but it should be provocative enough that they talk about it, I think. And and we're believing that God uses it beyond our even our hopes for imagination. So uh, that's where we are in this story. I would just encourage people to to join the journey as this unfolds over the next couple of years and watch it take place. And um, just if anybody's wondering, it's like like I, we're recording this in the UK and this is based in the in England. Uh, yeah. You don't have to be living in England or the UK to 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 come submit a story. You could be anywhere in the world, couldn't you? Yeah, that's right. We're 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 looking to gather two hundred fifty thousand stories, kind of from the nations. They can be in different languages. Uh, you know, they're gonna for some of them they're gonna come. We've got a, a collection of stories from people in persecuted churches in nations where they really have no voice, and their stories are gonna be heard. Many of them for the first time. Yeah. But but I think we'd we'd love to see all. All people, all nations, all languages represented here, even though it's in the heart of the UK, really, this is like a pioneering project. And in the future, who knows, maybe these will be on every continent. Yeah. Because the middle is enough to contain everything that God has done. So, so hopefully there could be loads of these are. things. Yeah. There yeah. could be a number of these things around the world then, couldn't there, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Cool. So if people want to find out more, um, how do they do that? I, I think the best way is to, to look on our website first. I mean, if they're on social media, they can search for Eternal Wall of Answered Prayer on any platform that they're, they're comfortable with, and they'll find us. Uh, our website uh, will show them. It'll kind of take them on a journey through our history. It'll tell them everything they need to know. Uh, the, the website is really simple, www.eternalwall, all one word, normal spelling. <laughs> dot org dot uk there's videos there's uh, some really cool graphics about what this thing is going to look like and a kind of a stage by stage account but also an invitation for them to get involved i mean we always need volunteers we always need people with skill sets we always need people on the ground to connect us with churches or prayer ministries in partnership uh, so there's all kinds of ways we invite people to get on board and, of course, to pray for us if they can to donate to cover some of our costs of building. There's all kinds of ways. But really, we want this to be the journey of the church in, in the UK and the world. So, yeah, please, please look us up and, and make contact. We'd love to talk with you. Sure. I'm just I'm just looking at the website at the moment. If anybody's like from what you've described, if anybody's like for example thinking so how big is this thing going to be what's the scale of it what shape is it going to be what's it you know what's it going to look like when you see it actually all they need to do is go to that website because there's an immediate there's an animated little yeah. graphic which shows you exactly what scale it's going to be and exactly what it would look like um so that's eternalwall.org.uk that's right yeah and then and then there's a kind of little menu thing and you can kind of click on that and find out ways to get involved from there and and that's the that's a good place to tell their stories too that's uh there's a really simple template there that uh guides them through the process of telling their stories and yeah you know some people this will be the first time but hopefully if they tell it to us they can tell it to somebody else too yeah right yeah they don't have to stop there do they they can they can tell no. it other people. It's just the beginning because somebody needs to hear our unique story and it doesn't have to be dramatic it just we trust the holy spirit to connect us with somebody that needs to hear yeah okay well that's fantastic and dave i think we're probably coming to the end now but thank you so much for sharing you know some some quite personal stories with us and this amazing project as well so that's eternalwall.org.uk people that are interested in finding out a little bit more about that Okay. So yeah, thanks very much, Dave. God bless you and your family. Well, thank and your you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Testimony Podcast. 
You can subscribe to the Testimony Podcast on all of the major podcast distributors and follow us on Twitter at TestimonyCast and Instagram at TestimonyPodcast. If you want to find out more about the Christian faith and connect with someone to talk about your experiences or answer your questions, just go to www.christianity.org.uk from wherever you are in the world. That's www.christianity.org.uk. I look forward to sharing more of the stories that matter from people of faith with you soon. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye.